0: 13. e. sites selected for the state capitol directly at the center of it, and lots were sold off by the state to individuals, the proceeds of these sales being used to build the capital. As a result the parks, streets and sidewalks of the original old town still belong to the state of North Carolina, and the city has jurisdiction over them only by courtesy of the state government. Raleigh has, of course, much outgrown its original dimensions, and the government of the town outside the original square mile at the center, is as in other towns. While Raleigh has not the look of age which characterizes many old southern cities, causing them to delight the eye and the imagination, its broad streets had here and there a building old enough to remove from the town any air of rawness and to make it a home-like looking place. The sidewalks are wide, when we were in Raleigh those of the principal streets were paved largely with soft-colored old red bricks, which, however, were being taken up and replaced with cement, not being a resident of Raleigh, and consequently not having been obliged to tread the rough brick pavements daily. I was sorry to witness this victory of utility over beauty. One of the pleasant old buildings is the Yarborough Hotel, at which my companion and I stayed. The Yarborough is an exceedingly good hotel for a city of the size of Raleigh, especially, it may be added, when that city is in the south, the capital, standing among trees in a small park also gathers a fine flavor from age, in one of the many simple dignified apartments of this building my companion and I were introduced to the gentleman who was governor of the state at the time of our visit, it seemed to me that he had a look both worn and apprehensive, and that, while we talked, he was waiting for something, I don't know how I gathered this impression, but it came to me definitely, after we had departed from the executive chamber I asked the gentleman who had taken us there if the governor was ill, he replied. All our governors look like that after they have been in office for a while. From overwork, remember from an overworked jest the jest about what the governor of North Carolina said to the governor of South Carolina. Everyone who meets the governor thinks of that joke and believes confidently that no one has ever before thought of this application of it. So they all pull it on him. For the first few months our governors stand it pretty well. But after that they begin to break down. They feel they ought to smile. But they can't. They begin to dread meeting strangers, and to show it in their bearing, when in private life our governor had a very pleasant expression, but like all the others, he has acquired, in office, the expression of an iron dog. Raleigh's most widely known citizen is Joseph Daniels, secretary of the Navy, and publisher of the Raleigh News and Observer. This paper, published in the morning, and the Times, a rival paper, published in the afternoon, are, I believe, The only dailies in the city. Mr. Daniels has been so much discussed that I was greatly interested in hearing what Raleigh had to say of him. Everyone knew him personally. The men on his paper seemed to be very fond of him. Others held various opinions. In 1894, Mr. Daniels came from Washington, D.C., where he had been chief clerk in the Department of the Interior, when Hokesmith was secretary, and acquired the newspaper of which he has since been proprietor, in its first years under Mr. Daniels. The paper is said to have gone through severe financial struggles, and there is an amusing story current, about the way the payroll was met upon one occasion. According to this tale, the business manager of the paper came to Mr. Daniels, one day, and informed him that he needed $60 more to make the payroll, and didn't know where he was going to get it. The only ready asset in sight, it is related, was several cases of a patent medicine known as, Mrs. Joe Person's Remedy which had been taken by the news and observer in payment for advertising space. Mr. Daniels had a few dollars, and his business manager had a railroad pass. With these resources the latter went out on the road and sold the patent medicine for enough to make up the deficit. Until Mr. Daniels was appointed secretary of the Navy he seems to have been regarded by many citizens of Raleigh as a good, earnest, hard-working man possessed of considerable personal magnetism and a good political nose a man who could scent how the pack was running, take a shortcut, and presently appear to be leading, in other words an opportunist, though he has not much education, and though as a writer he is far from polished, it is said that he has written powerful editorials, when his editorials have been good, said one gentleman, it is because he has been stirred up over something and because he manages sometimes to get into his writing the intensity of his own personality, his office used to be, and still island when he is in Raleigh, a sort of political headquarters, and he used to be able to write editorials while half a dozen politicians were sitting around his desk, talking, with his paper he has done much good in the state, notably by fighting consistently for prohibition and for greater public educational advantages. The strong educational movement in North Carolina began with a group of men chief among whom were the late Governor Charles B. Icock, called, the Educational Governor, Dr. A. Alderman, who, though president of the University of Virginia, is a North Carolinian and was formerly president of the University of that state, Dr. Charles D. McEver who committed the state to the principle of higher education for women, and other men of similar high purpose. A gentleman who was far from an unqualified admirer of Mr. Daniels, told me that without his aid the great educational advance which the state has certainly made of recent years could hardly have been accomplished, and that the same thing applies in the case of Prohibition which has been adopted in North Carolina. What sort of man is he? I asked this gentleman. He is the old type of Methodist. He said, he is the kind of man who believes that the whale swallowed Jonah. He has the same concept of religion that he had as a child. I differ with his policies, his politics, his mental methods but I don't think anybody here doubts that he is trying, not only to do the moral thing himself, but to force others to adopt, as rules for public conduct, the exact code in which he personally believes, and which he certainly follows. His mental processes are often crude, yet he has much native shrewdness and the ability to grasp situations as they arise. He does not come of the aristocratic class, which probably accounts for his failure, when he first became secretary to perceive the necessity for discipline in the Navy, and the benefits of naval tradition. He was an ardent follower I might say swallower of Brian, gobbling whole all of the, great commoners, bakeries, it has been said, more or less humorously, but doubtless with a foundation of fact, that he was, secretary of war in all of Brian's cabinets, that shows where Brian placed him, yet when Brian broke with Wilson and made his exit from the cabinet, Daniels found it perfectly simple, apparently. To drop the Brianism which had, hitherto, been the very essence of his life, and become a no less ardent supporter of the president. When he was first taken into the cabinet he evidently regarded the finer social amenities as matters of no consequence, or even as effeminacies. He had but little sense of the fitness of things, and was, in consequence, continually making faux pas, but he is observant, he has learned a great deal in the course of his life as a cabinet member, both as to his work in the department, and as to the niceties of formal social life, at the time of our visit to Raleigh I had not met Mr. Daniels, nor heard him speak. Since that time I have heard him several times and have talked with him. Also I have talked of him with a number of men who have been thrown more or less closely in contact with him. As is well known, naval officers detested him with peculiar unanimity. This was true up to the time of our entering the war. Whether matters had changed greatly since then I am unable to say. One officer, well known in the Navy, said to me quite seriously that he believed the Navy would be better off without its two best dreadnoughts if in losing them it could also lose Mr. Daniels. Such sentiments were peculiarly unanimous among officers. On the other hand, however, a high officer, who has been quite close to the secretary, informs me that it is indeed true that he has improved as experience has come to him. This officer stated that when Mr. Daniels first took office he seemed to be definitely antagonistic to officers of the Navy. He appeared to suspect them of pulling political wires and working in their own interests. That was in the days when he seemed almost to encourage insubordination among the enlisted men, by his attitude toward them, in contrast to his attitude towards their superiors. Of course it was demoralizing to the service, but there has been a marked change in the secretary since Bryan left the Cabinet. From several sources I had heard the same evidence. I never heard anyone say that Mr. Daniels was really unable secretary of the Navy. But I had heard many say that he improved. Personally he is a very likable man. His face is kind and gentle, his features are interestingly irregular and there are heavy wrinkles about his mouth and eyes the former adding something to the already humorous twinkle of the eyes. His voice has a timbre reminding me of George M. Cohan's voice. He is hardly on order in the sense that Brian Island yet he is not without simple oratorical tricks as for example a tremolo, as of emotion, which I have heard him use in uttering such a phrase as, the great that Daniel Webb is here. Also, he wears a low turnover collar and a black string tie effect which would not be worth noting did these not form a part of what amounts almost to a uniform worn by politicians of more or less the Brian type. Almost invariably there seems to be something of the minister and something of the actor in such men. Once I asked one of the famous Washington correspondents what manner of man Mr. Daniels was. He's a man. He said, that you'd like to go with on a hunting trip in his native North Carolina. He would be a good companion and would have a lot of funny stories. He is full of kind intentions. Had you known him before the war? And had he liked you? And had you wished to take a ride upon a battleship? he would be disposed to order up a battleship and send you for a ride, even if, by doing so, he muddled up the fleet a little, that would be in line with his fixing it for moving picture people to act scenes on a battleship's deck which he permitted, he saw no reason why that was not proper, and the kind of people who admire him most are those who, likewise, see no reason why it was not proper, the great lack in his nature is that of personal dignity or even the dignity which should be his because of his position. If you are sitting beside him and he is amiably disposed toward you, he may throw his arm over your shoulder, or massage your knee while talking with you. But if some friend of his were to go to him and convince him that he lacked dignity, he is the kind of man who, in my judgment, would become so much the worse. That island if he attempted to attain dignity, he would not achieve it, but would merely grow arbitrary. That, to my mind, shows his great and eradicable weakness for it not only reveals him as a man too little for his job, but prevents his comprehending the basic thing upon which naval discipline is founded. Nevertheless, as a man you like him, it is as Secretary of the Navy, and particularly as a War Secretary, that you very definitely don't. Sometime after our visit to Raleigh my companion and I heard Secretary Daniel speak in Charleston, he told a funny story and talked generalities about the Navy. That was before the United States entered the war. I do not know what he meant the speech for, but what it actually was, was a speech against preparedness. So was the speech made on the same occasion by Lemuel P. Paget, chairman of the House Committee on Naval Affairs. It was a disingenuous speech, a speech to allow the country into confidence, a speech which, alone, should have been sufficient to prove Mr. Paget's unfitness to serve on that committee. Mr. Daniels argued that, Germany's preparedness had not kept Germany out of war, that seemed enough but there was one thing he said which utterly dumbfounded me, it was this, the southern statesman who serves his section best, serves the country best, let the reader reflect for a moment upon such an utterance, carried a little farther what would it mean, would it not be equally logical to say that the man who serves himself best serves the country best, it is the theory of narrow sectionalism, and by implication, at least, the theory of individualism as well, and sectionalism and individualism are two of the great curses of the United States. Compare with Mr. Daniels' words those of John Hay who, veiling fine patriotism beneath a web of delicate humor, said, in my bewilderment of origin and experience I can only put on an aspect of deep humility in any gathering of favorite sons, and confess that I am nothing but an American, or again, compare with them the famous words of Patrick Henry, I am not a Virginian, but an American, clearly. One point of view or the other is wrong. Perhaps Mr. Daniels has more light on sectional questions than had Patrick Henry or John Hay. At all events. The Charleston audience applauded. Chapter XXVII items from the Old North State. Two of the most interesting things we saw in Raleigh were the model jail on the top floor of the New County Courthouse. Where a lot of very honest looking rustics were confined to await trial for making blockade, otherwise moonshine whiskey. And the North Carolina Hall of History which occupies a floor in the fine new state administration building, opposite the Capitol, at the head of the first stair landing in the administration building is a memorial tablet to a William Sidney Porter O. Henry, who was born in Greensboro, North Carolina, with a bust of the author, in relief, by Lorado Taft, Porter, it may be mentioned, was a connection of Worth Bagley, the young ensign who was the only American naval officer killed in the Spanish-American War, Bagley was a brother of Mrs. Joseph Daniels, a monument to him stands in the park before the Capitol, aside from Porter, the only author well known in our time whom I heard mentioned in connection with North Carolina, was the ref, Thomas Dixon, whose name is most familiar, perhaps, in connection with the moving picture called, The Birth of a Nation, taken from one of his novels, Mr. Dixon was born in the town of Shelby, North Carolina. And was for some years pastor of the Tabernacle Baptist Church, Raleigh. The Hall of History, containing a great variety of state relics, is one of the most fascinating museums I ever visited. Too much praise cannot be given Colonel Fred A. Olds and Mr. Marshall Delancey Haywood, of the North Carolina Historical Society, for making it what it is, as would the Confederate Museum in Richmond. So, here, it is impossible to give more than a faint idea of the interest of the museum's contents. Among the exhibits of which I made note, I shall, however, mention a few. There was a letter written from Paris in the handwriting of John Paul Jones, requesting a copy of the Constitution of North Carolina, there was the Ku Klux warning issued to a one Ben Turner of Northampton County, and there was an old newspaper advertisement signed by James J. Selby, a tailor, dated at Raleigh, June 24, 1824. Offering a reward of $10 for the capture and return of two runaways, apprentice boys, legally bound, named William and Andrew Johnson. The last named boy was the same Andrew Johnson who later became a distinctly second-rate President of the United States. Also there was a peculiarly tragic Civil War memento, consisting of a note which was found clasped in the dead hand of Colonel Isaac Avery, of the 6th North Carolina Regiment, who was killed while commanding a brigade on the second day at Gettysburg tell my father I died with my face to the enemy. These words were written by the fallen officer with his left hand, his right arm having been rendered useless by his mortal wound, for ink he used his own lifeblood. Also in the museum may be seen the chart book of Blackbeard, the pirate, who, one of the curators of the museum informed me, was the same person as Edward Teach, Blackbeard, who was commemorated in the name of Blackbeard's Island, off the coast of South Georgia, met his fate when he encountered a cruiser fitted out by Governor Spotswood of Virginia and commanded by Lieutenant Maynard. Maynard found Blackbeard's ship at Killet, on the North Carolina coast. Before he and his men could board the pirate vessel the pirates came and boarded them. Severe fighting ensued, but the pirates were defeated, Maynard himself killing Blackbeard in single combat with swords. The legend around Ocracoke is that Blackbeard's bad fortune on this occasion came to him because of the unlucky number of his matrimonial adventures, the story being that he had thirteen wives. It is said also that his vanquishers cut off his head and hung it at the yard arm of their ship, throwing his body into the sea, and that as soon as the body struck the water the head began to call, Come on, Edward, whereupon the headless body swam three times around the ship. Personally I think there may be some slight doubt about the authenticity of this part of the story, for, while from one point of view we might say that to swim about in such aimless fashion would be the very thing a man without a head might do, yet from another point of view the question arises, would a man whose head had just been severed from his body feel like taking such a long swim, and what a rich lot of other historic treasures, did you know, for instance, that Flora MacDonald, the Scottish heroine, who helped Prince Charles Edward to escape, dressed as a maidservant, after the Battle of Cologne, in 1746, came to America with her husband and many relatives just before the Revolutionary War and settled at Cross Creek now Fayetteville, North Carolina, when General Donald MacDonald raised the royal standard at the time of the Revolution, her husband and many of her kinsmen joined him, and these were later captured at the Battle of Moores Creek Bridge, in 1776 and taken as prisoners to Philadelphia. Yes, and Flora Macdonald's garter buckles are now in the museum at Raleigh. A portrait of Captain James J. Waddell, CSN who was a member of a famous North Carolina family, recalls the story of his post bellum cruise, in command of the Shenandoah. When, not knowing that the war was over, he prayed for months on federal commerce in the South Seas, The museum of course contains many uniforms worn by distinguished soldiers of the Confederacy and many old flags, among them one said to be the original flag of the Confederacy. This flag was designed by Oren R. Smith of Lewisburg, North Carolina, and was made in that town. The journals of the Confederate Congress show that countless designs for a flag were submitted, that the committee on a flag reported that all designs had been rejected and returned, the committee having adopted one of its own. Nevertheless Mr. Smith's claim to have designed the flag finally adopted is so well supported that the Confederate veterans, at their general reunion held in Richmond in 1915, passed a resolution endorsing it. Also in the museum is the shot riddled smokestack of the Confederate ram Albemarle, which was built on the farm of Peter E. Smith, on Roanoke River, and is said to have been the first vessel ever launched sideways. The Albemarle, after a glorious career, was sunk by Lt. Cushing. USN and his famous exploit with a torpedo carried on a pole at the bow of a launch. It will be remembered that the launch was sunk by the shock and that only Cushing and one member of his crew survived, swimming away under fire. North Carolina also claims and not without some justice that the first English settlement on this continent was not that at Jamestown, but the one made by Sir Walter Raleigh's expedition, under Armadas and Barlowe, which landed at Roanoke Island, August 4th. 1584, and remained there for some weeks. The Jamestown Colony, say the North Carolinians, was nearly the first to stick. Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, across the sound from Roanoke Island, is the site of the first flight of a man in an aeroplane. The Wright brothers having tried out their first crewed plane there, among the Kill Devil Sand Dunes, a part of the original plane is preserved in the museum nor must I leave the museum without mentioning the bullet-riddled head of General W.R. Cox, and his gray military coat, with a blood-stained dash in front, where a solid shell ripped across. General Cox's son, Mr. Albert Cox, was with us in the museum when we stopped to a look at this grim souvenir. It tore father open in front, he said, spoiled a coat which had cost him 550 Confederate, and damaged his watch chain. Nevertheless he lived to take part in the last charge at Appomattox, and the watch chain wasn't so badly spoiled but what, with the addition of some new links, it could be worn, and he showed us where the chain, which he himself was wearing at the time, had been repaired. I must say something, also, of the North Carolina College of Agriculture and Mechanic Arts, an institution doing splendid work, and doing it efficiently, both in its own buildings and through extension courses. 52% of the students at this college earn their way through, either wholly or in part, and better yet, 83% of the graduates stick to the practical work afterwards an unusually high record. The president of the college, Dr. D. H. Hill, is a son of the Confederate general of the same name, who has been called the Iron Sides of the South. There are a number of other important educational institutions in and about Raleigh, and there is one which, if not important, is at all events. A curio. This is, Lata University. Consisting of a few flimsy shacks in the Negro village of Oberlin. On the outskirts of Raleigh. Professor, Lata is one of the rare Negroes who combines the habit with white folks of the old-fashioned southern darky. And the astuteness of the, new issue, in high finance. Years ago he conceived the idea of establishing a Negro school near Raleigh. To which he gave the above-mentioned name. He had no funds. No credit and little or no education. Nevertheless, he had ideas, the central one of which was that New England was the land of plenty. With the university in his head, and with a miscellaneous collection of photographs, he managed to make a tour of northern cities, and came back with his pockets lined. As a result, he procured a little land, put up frame buildings, gathered a few youths about him, and was fully launched on his career as a university president. So long as the money held out, Ladder was content to drift along with his school. When he came to the bottom of the bag, he invested the last of his savings in another ticket north and, armed with his title of President, made addresses to northern audiences and replenished his finances with their contributions. Finally, as the great act of his career, Ladd managed to get passage to Europe and was gone for several months. When he came back he had added a manuscript to his possessions, The History of My Life and Work, which he published, and which is one of the most curious volumes I had ever seen. It is illustrated largely with photographs of the author. One of the pictures is entitled, Ref, M. L. Ladder when he first commenced to build Lada University. This shows Lada with the tips of his fingers resting on a small table. Another picture shows him posed with one hand raised and the other resting on what is unmistakably the same little table. The latter picture, however, has the caption, Ref, M. L. Mladda making a speech in Quattucket, R.I.M.C.A. Both pictures were all too clearly taken in a photographer's studio. Another page shows us, Ref, M. L. Latte and three of his admirable presidents. In this case lad merely takes for himself the upper right-hand corner, the other eminent persons pictured being ex-presidents Roosevelt, McKinley and Cleveland. The star illustration, however, is a made-up picture, in which a photograph of Latte, looking spick and span has been pasted onto a what is very obviously a painted picture of a hall full of people in evening dress, all of them gazing at Lattie, who stands upon the stage, dignified, suave, impressive, and all dressed up by the brush of the retoucher. This picture is called, in the auditorium at London, in 1894. Similar artfulness is shown in pictures of the, university, buildings, where the same frame structure, photographed from opposite ends, appears in one case as, young ladies' dormitory, and in the other as, chapel and young men's dormitory, in his autobiography, Ladd tells how, in the course of getting his own schooling, he raised money by teaching a district school during vacation, he says, after paying my expenses, I had nearly a hundred dollars to return to school with, when I returned I was able to dress very neatly indeed, and the young ladies received me very cordially on the green during social hour. Before I taught school it was a common saying among the young ladies and young men, Lada, but after I returned with a hundred dollars it was, Mr. Lada, all over the campus. I would hear the young ladies saying among themselves, I bet Mr. Ladder will not go with you, he will correspond with me this afternoon. I paid no attention to it. I said to myself, don't you see what a hundred dollars will do? In another place the professor reveals how he came to write his book, Professor King. One of the teachers at Latta University said to me, If I had done what you have done I would have wrote a history of my life several years ago. The best part of the book, however, gives us Latta's account of his doings in London. Just before I left the city of London I was invited by a distinguished friend, a close relation to Queen Victoria, to make a speech. He told me there would be a meeting in one of the large halls in that city. I can't just think of the name of the hall. He invited me to be present. The distinguished friend that I had just mentioned presided over the meeting. There was an immense audience present, if memory serves me right. I was the only Negro in the hall. The gentleman came to me and asked if I would make a speech. I told him I had already delivered one address, besides several sermons I had preached, and I thought that I would not speak again during my stay. I accepted the invitation, however, and spoke. The professor then tells how he was introduced as one whose addresses were among the ablest ever delivered in London, also he gives his speech in full, great events followed, his distinguished and named friend, the close relation of the queen, came to him soon after, he says, and asked him if he had ever been to the palace, continues Lata, he said to me, if you will come over before you leave the city, and call to see me, I will take you to the palace with me and introduce you to the queen. I told him I would do so, that I had heard a good deal about the royal throne, and I would be very much interested to see the palace, he said he thought I would, because the government was very different from ours, I called at his residence as I had promised, and he went with me to the palace, the queen knew him, of course, he was received very cordially, everything shined so much like gold in the palace that I had to stop and think where I was, he introduced me to the queen and told her I was from North America. He told her that I spoke at a meeting he presided over, and he enjoyed my speech very much. He told her we had an immense audience, and all the people were well pleased with the speech. The queen said she was more than glad to meet me, and she would have liked very much to have been present, and heard the speech that her cousin said I made. She told me she hoped that would not be the last visit I would make to their city. I shook hands with her and bade her goodbye. The distinguished friend carried me and showed me the different departments of the palace, and I bade him goodbye. In Raleigh, I think, they rather like Lada. It amuses them to see him go north and get money, and it is said that he appreciates the situation himself. He ought to. Not many southern Negroes have such comfortable homes as Lada Universities best kept up building the residence of the president. Chapter X X V I I under Street Michaels chimes and where Street Michaels chimes the fragrant hours exquisitely tell, making the world one loveliness, like a true poet's rhymes, Richard Watson Gilder. It has been said by Mrs. T.P. O'Connor, I think that whereas 25 letters of introduction for New York may produce one invitation to dinner, one letter of introduction for Charleston will produce 25 dinner invitations, if this be an exaggeration at Island at least exaggeration in the right direction, that island along the lines of truth, for though Charleston's famed exclusiveness is very real, making letters of introduction very necessary to strangers desiring to see something of the city's social life, such letters produce, in Charleston, as Mrs. O'Connor suggests, results definite and delightful, immediately upon our arrival, my companion and I sent out several letters we had brought with us, and presently calling cards began to arrive for us at the hotel. Also there came courteous little notes, delivered in most cases by hand, according to the old Charleston custom a custom surviving pleasantly from times when there were no postal arrangements, but plenty of slaves to run errands, even to this day. I am told, invitations to Charleston's famous St. Cecilia Balls are delivered by hand. One of the notes we received revealed to us a characteristic custom of the city. It contained an invitation to occupy places in the pew of a distinguished family, that Street Michaels Church, on the approaching Sunday morning. In order to realize the significance of such an invitation, one must understand that Street Michaels is to Charleston, socially, what Street George's, Hanover Square, is to a London, a beautiful old building, surrounded by a historic burial ground and